It's a great pleasure for me to be here with you. Um, I want to begin um, with a group in France that I know well and that has um, influenced me um, quite a bit um, because their message focuses will be, is an excellent focus to begin. And so um, you can put up on the thing the four prayer subjects of the Union de Prière. The Union de Prière is a kind of dispersed community in the French Reformed Church. It was founded by a man called Louis Dallière, that's D-A-L-L-I-E-G-R-A-R-E, and who lived from 1897 to 1976. Um, he formed the Union de Prière immediately after the Second World War, and this prayer union focuses on four subjects. And you see the four subjects here, but you can already see that they connect very directly with things that George has just mentioned. First, revival and conversion. Uh, and this links with the evangelization of the world. The second is the illumination of Israel. The third, the organic unity of the body of Christ. So, there you have two more of your growing interests. And fourth, the second coming of the Lord and the resurrection of the dead. And as I got to know the Union de Prière, I saw that Louis Dallière had, in fact, in these four subjects, he'd really given a prophetic interpretation of the meaning of the outpouring of the Spirit in the 20th century. I think these four prayer subjects correspond to the heart of why the Holy Spirit has been poured out in the Pentecostal and Charismatic movements as it has during the 20th century. I think he, what he saw with these four things were, this was prophetic Inside a prophetic interpretation of the outpouring of the Spirit. He was, in fact, baptized in the Spirit after contact with Pentecostals around the year 1930. But he was a Reformed pastor and he knew he was to remain in the Reformed Church and he, and this, he developed this within the French Reformed Church. And in his thinking, the first three are all ordered towards the fourth. And this is also very important. The meaning of the first three, they find their full meaning, revival, conversion, illumination of Israel, the organic unity of the body of Christ, find their full meaning in the coming of the Lord in glory and the resurrection of the dead. Now, um, I came in touch first with the Union de Prayer. I'd heard of them before, but I came in touch with them um, directly and visited their headquarters in uh, January 1989. And the contact with that helped to give me further light on things that I was already sensing and seeing. But it was 
really only in 1996 that I sensed the Lord saying to me that the heart of my calling was the preparation of the churches for the second coming. I felt this was what the Lord was saying. And in a way the second coming had already been growing in me this understanding for several years but it was as though in 1996 the Lord took that among all the many things I thought were important and just lifted it up. This is the goal. There's no other goal. This is the goal. All the other things we think of are goals of preparation for the coming of the Lord and the fullness of the kingdom. And also what I saw with this is it's the Holy Spirit. This is the whole goal of the Holy Spirit. You see, we're often very short-sighted, so we think the Holy Spirit's being poured out for something that's meant, you know, going to happen this year, maybe this week, or in the next five years. But... um, In fact, every move of the Holy Spirit is preparing for the fullness to come because God is not short-sighted. Everything has its place in the full purpose of the Lord. So, I now come to um, four other things that... um, Good. Preparation for the second coming. As the Lord... um, led me into this calling there were certain convictions I had, light I had from the Lord and these four points really sum up very key elements in this vision first that it's only the Holy Spirit that can truly prepare for the coming of the Lord Um, we absolutely cannot do it by merely human Um, means, effort and so on it's totally disproportionate we cannot and so this is why the in all the movements of the Holy Spirit in history you always get a sense about the coming of the Lord maybe that it's near which is not necessarily a mistake when people said the second coming is near I think they did here in Heronhut in 1727, they weren't making a mistake. It's a question of our understanding of timing. But you do see, if you study the history of revivals, that the more there is a focus and awareness of the Holy Spirit, the more you will find a new awakening of the hope for the coming of the Lord. And this was very clear in the beginning of the Pentecostal movement. In the beginning of the Pentecostal movement, um, it was more a movement about the Lord coming soon than it was a move, than it was a tongues movement, for example. So that's the first element in the preparation it can only be done by the Holy Spirit the second element and this is of course very important for unity is that all Christian churches denominations and movements must be involved Um, now what I saw was to start with every 
tradition, every heritage, however messed up it's become, contains a treasure of the Lord. There's something of the Holy Spirit. There's a deposit of the Holy Spirit in every church tradition, in every Christian group. And later generations may have misunderstood it, they may have added other unhelpful elements or wrong or whatever, but the deposit is there. And all of these elements are needed for the kingdom because they all form part of the preparation for the kingdom. So, this, I think, is a foundational principle. And this is very important for unity because often when people talk about unity, they don't think much about the second coming. You know, the ecumenical movement um, of the 20th century has been focused on unity, but there's been not been much focus on the second coming, and I think this is a serious weakness. You see, in Ephesians 4... Verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That's verse 3. Verse 4 says, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. See, here you have unity, one verse, the hope, the next verse, the hope is the hope of the coming of the Lord. You know, as we, in Titus, we find... Titus 2.13, you know, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So, this is essential that the, the deposit of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit, everywhere is needed for the completion. You see, the Holy Spirit is never poured out in a sort of senseless, purposeless way. Every outpouring of the Spirit, every deposit that's created by the Holy Spirit is there as part of the preparation for the kingdom. That's its full context and meaning. And so we cannot say of any part of the whole worldwide body of Christ that it's not needed you know, Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 12, you know, I have no need of you, that different members of the body. This applies here in relation to the fullness of the kingdom. Nobody can say some other part is not needed. However, all third principle is that all need profound purification and renewal through the Holy Spirit. Because the deposit of the Spirit everywhere is nowhere is it simply pure deposit of Holy Spirit. It's a mixture of what comes from the Lord and what is um, what, what does not come from the Lord. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, there's a difference between what comes merely from human spirit and what comes from evil spirit. But um, the point here is that 
all need profound purification and renewal, and this process requires the Holy Spirit. You see, the process of purification and renewal, first of all, we need the light of the Holy Spirit for purification, because it's only through the light of the Holy Spirit that we can see what is pure and what is not pure. You know, there's a very important passage in John 16 here that I sometimes use in teaching about the work of the Spirit because in John 16 from verse 7 to verse 11 speaks about this purifying work of the Spirit. When the Spirit comes he will convict the world of sin and so on. There's a convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Or the Holy Spirit shows us where the world has entered the church. And in regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin, of sin of unbelief. But in verses 12 to 15, this passage speaks about the revealing work of the Holy Spirit, the positive work of the Holy Spirit, which is the revealing, above all, the revealing of Jesus Christ. You know, the Spirit will take from what is mine, Jesus says, and make it known to you. And so, there's this twofold work of the Spirit, the illuminating leading to conviction of sin, and the illuminating that leads to revelation of who Jesus is in his fullness. And so, this is all part of this step three, all need profound purification and renewal through the Holy Spirit. Now, you see, in this context, I'm talking primarily of churches, denominations, movements. So, I'm not talking in three simply of individual purification. I'm talking of purification of communities, of churches, denominations, movements, and so on. And this is possible, because... You know, the great example of this, and this I suppose is beginning on point four, Israel as catalyst, is that we see the history of Israel is one of constant disobedience and rebellion and then being summoned back to obedience once again. You know, whether you're looking at the book of Judges or whether you're looking at the period of the kings or whatever, you have the prophets are calling people of Israel back and this is both personal and it's corporate, it's the whole people and nation and so um, I think this also applies to the church and so we're coming to the fourth point which is Israel's catalyst. Now in this whole preparation for the second coming um, it's interesting, when I heard this call for the preparation for the second coming, and when, when I said yes to this, immediately certain things happened. And the most striking thing that happened was, it's like all the doors to the Messianic Jews suddenly opened for me. I saw this was a direct consequence of saying yes to this call about the second coming. I was invited to join Toward Jerusalem Council 2, which I'll talk about this evening. 
I was also invited to join in weeks of prayer and fasting um, with Benjamin and Reuben Berger of Jerusalem, Christa Bear, German lady who lives in Jerusalem. Uh, and we had four years of weeks of prayer and fasting. And the first of these weeks was near Rome. The second was in Kiryat Yerim, about 12 miles west of Jerusalem. The third was by the Mount of Olives at the side in sight of the old city of Jerusalem but outside it and the fourth year was inside the old city and this, this, these weeks were amazing extremely difficult um, and not at all enjoyable in a human sense but profoundly satisfying because the, the Holy Spirit was leading us on the journey that we felt the whole church had to take somewhere the journey from Rome to Jerusalem and this happened immediately also after so I second coming calling so I was quickly aware of, of how important this was and here I'm not so much speaking here about Jewish believers in Jesus but it's all part of the picture of course under two one should really add the Jewish believers in Jesus also in, under number two because they have a really essential part. But under number four, I'm thinking more here of the Gentile churches, Israel's catalyst. And I see different ways in which the contact with Israel acts as a catalyst profoundly challenging to all of us Gentile Christians in our understanding of Jesus, understanding of the scriptures, understanding of the hope. So, how is this question of Israel challenging? Well, I, I'm, I put Israel as catalyst and not Messianic Jews as catalyst. The Messianic Jews are in this way challenging but it's the whole phenomenon of Israel that's here that I'm seeing as catalyst, as challenging to us. This means the whole Jewish people, the return to the land of Israel, creation state of Israel, uh, and the raising up of a Jewish expression of the church again in our day. This is one of the amazing things that's happening and of course I'll talk more about that this evening but you know, it is one of the extraordinary things that's happened in our day is that there is once again a Jewish partner within the body of Christ or as they would say the body of Messiah and um, so this is hugely challenging now the challenge operates at various levels first one I put down here is one of repentance now of course this is especially a challenge to the Catholic and Orthodox churches because the history of the Catholic and Orthodox churches is more stained by anti-Semitic things, teaching and things than of any other churches though as is well known Luther in his later years was not very friendly towards the Jews 
Um, so the, the, the first challenge is a, to a repentance and a confession of the sin. First, a recognition of the sin, of sins of the past. And this has several dimensions, the recognition of the sins of the past. It, of course, it's a recognition of forms of oppression, of violence, of persecution, but it's also a recognition of wrong teaching. Therefore, you know, I think replacement teaching, as it's generally known, or substitution, replacement teaching, the teaching that the church has replaced Israel as God's chosen people, and that God has rejected Israel. This is a false teaching, and it, in fact, is not just a theological mistake, it is sin. It's an expression of arrogance. It's an expression of judgment. Jesus says, do not judge lest you be judged. Well, one of the prime examples of judgment in history is church saying God has rejected the Jews. And so, you know, there are different layers of the sin. Uh, A few years ago, I read a very interesting book by a Methodist scholar from the USA called Solon, R. Kendall Solon, S-O-U-L-E-N. He wrote a book called Christian Theology and the God of Israel. And in this, he, one of the things he does in this, it's not in all of the parts of this book very easy to read, but um, the, the most important part for me was his description of replacement teaching, which he uses the term supersession to describe, supersessionism, which means the same thing as replacement. But Solon identifies three forms of supersessionism. And two of them are fairly obvious, but the third is less obvious and more important. Um, The first two, the first is what he calls punitive supersessionism, That is the idea God has rejected the Jews because they rejected Jesus. So it's a punishment, punitive supersessionism. The second category is what he calls economic supersessionism. It was part of the economy of God. So in this view, the Jews fulfilled their calling with the coming of Jesus and they have no more significance after the coming of Jesus. So they have no further distinctive place in God's economy. Different from God's rejected them because as punishment, but still it means Israel is out of the picture as a distinct people. The third form of supersessionism that Solon identified is much more subtle in a way, and he calls it structural supersessionism. And this was a real eye-opener to me because I was aware of the first two but I hadn't ever thought about this until I read this book. Now, for Solon, structural supersessionism is when we tell the Christian story, when we present the message of salvation in a way that the people of Israel plays no essential part. See, and he calls this structural supersessionism. 
Now, in fact, we're probably riddled with structural supersessionism without being aware of it. Um, and this is a big challenge. Now, one example, for example, is whenever we go straight from Genesis 3 to Matthew 1 in our explanation of salvation, we are guilty of this because it means, in our view, the calling of the people of Israel played no important part in this story. So if we say God created man, God created man good, but man sinned, for therefore man needs a redeemer, and hey presto, many chapters later in the Bible, the Saviour appears, and it's Jesus. This is structural supersessionism. And of course, in many ways, it's embedded into lots of things. I think it's there in, excuse me, it's there in the four spiritual laws of Campus Crusade, for example. Now, you know, the Lord has used these things to bless many people. That's not the point. Um, the Lord can use our inadequate presentations to bless people. But the point is we're missing something important in the Lord's plan when we do that. And of course, one of the things that disappears with this structural supersessionism when we go straight from sin of Adam and Eve to the Redeemer, without mentioning Abraham, Moses, David and so on, one of the things that goes out is the idea of covenant. It's also probably very individualistic. It goes from the sin of an individual to the Redeemer who saves us individuals, without us people being a central part of the story. So, what goes out is covenant. Covenant plays no important part in it. it, But it's obvious from the scriptures, covenant is an extremely important part of the biblical revelation. So, so this is a huge challenge to all our evangelism. And all understanding of the church and so on. Um, Now... um, When I present this message about the preparation for the second coming, I do this in various sorts of groups, but I particularly, you know, I often do weeks for young people in this area. And young people are very receptive to this and the full picture. And um, there are two teachings that I use fairly regularly in this presentation and I thought it might be helpful to mention what these teachings are. One is a teaching on three Greek words of the New Testament apache, arabon and shpragis that is the first fruits, the seal or the guarantee or down payment and the seal. And of course the key passage for um, the first fruits is Romans 8.23 and in this verse Paul writes not only so but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies now you see 
And the other two images bring the same message in different words. This is that we have been given the gift of the Spirit, but what we've been given is the first fruits. Now, I hardly ever hear anybody teaching this. We hear people talking about receiving the Spirit, you receive the whole bag, and so on. What we're given is a first taste. We're given the first fruits. And this is the preparation for the fullness to come. So when we receive the first fruits, we have an inner orientation to the fullness to come. You see, and this is so he says, you who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. There's a groaning, a longing, an eager waiting. What for? For the redemption of our bodies. That means the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the body, the last day. See, and this is also the message that you find, like for example with the seal. In Ephesians 4.30, Paul writes, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It's exactly the same message. What is the day of redemption? It's the day of the Lord's coming. And we are sealed, those now, in preparation for that day. And it's the same thing in Ephesians 1, and 13 and 14, you see. You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, it says in this translation, NIV, which I'll criticise in a moment, um, the, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now here again, the word redemption is used to the last day. This is when Jesus claims his own. All those who are marked with the seal. Now, you know, the Holy Spirit, this, the seal, the Holy Spirit promised, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Now, when I criticise this translation, the promised Holy Spirit, in fact, the Greek has the Holy Spirit of promise. And I think what this means is the Holy Spirit is not only what has been promised, but the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of promise. And the, the promise is the fullness to come, above all. And so we've been given... What this does not mean, I think, which the phrase promised Holy Spirit suggests, it does not mean we have now received the Holy Spirit that was promised to Ezekiel and so on. That's what we could easily think it means. The Holy Spirit was promised to the prophets in the Old Testament, we've now received. No, here the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit of promise. Belongs to, to the... Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit of promise and when we receive the Holy Spirit of promise we receive the fullness of the promises of God 
See, and this is connected with the fullness to come. Okay. This is one of the teachings I developed, you know, over an hour or so on all these things, and particularly um, in 2 Corinthians 1. Two, the beginning of 2 Corinthians 5 is another important section here, and the same, exactly the same thing, especially 2 Corinthians 5 5. But the other teaching I often give here that brings this out is teaching on the word mystery. Now, mystery is an interesting word. You see, Catholics are very at home with the word mystery, but they don't always understand it in a very biblical way. Um, whereas evangelicals tend to be suspicious of the word mystery because you know, it appears to suggest superstition and perhaps incense and <laughs> other undesirable things. Um, the, um, um, but it, for Paul, the word mystery has a rather precise meaning, and um, it means God's plan, the fullness of God's plan, mystery. It means the plan which has been hidden for since the beginnings. God's plan from the beginning, it's been hidden through the ages. And it's now been declared through the coming of Jesus. And it's centered on Jesus. And it's revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. And so we find this description of the mystery, for example, in Ephesians 3, verse 4. And five, Paul speaks about, he says, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Here he calls it the mystery of Christ. Which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Now in, there in Ephesians 3.6, he tells us what the mystery is. This is one aspect of the mystery of the plan. That through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. See, here we get this presentation of the view of the understanding that the Gentiles have been made co-heirs with Israel. Therefore, the church by its nature, is made up of Jews and Gentiles reconciled in Christ. This is the message of the one new man in Ephesians chapter 2, which is 15 and 16. But here it is in Ephesians 3, 6. But um, in Colossians 1, it's a similar thing about the mystery. See verse 26 the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the saints. In, in, in Ephesians it's disclosed to the apostles and prophets. In Colossians it's disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So here's another description of the mystery. You see, the God's plan, whole plan. Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
So this, in this verse, Colossians 1.27, it brings out the aspect of the indwelling of Christ in the believer and in the church. But that is itself the hope of glory. See, here you have again this idea of the Holy Spirit of promise. The, the, the present reality of the presence of the Spirit and of the Lord and the hope this brings for the future. So Christ in you now that is the hope of the glory to come. And, you know, there's other passages that mention the mystery like Romans 16, 25, 26 and other places. But, and Ephesians 1, 9 to 10 is important here because that's where Paul says um, the, he, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfilment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. See, here you have clearly the plan of God, the, the eternal plan of the Father. He called the mystery, or the mystery of Christ, and it's to bring all things in heaven and on earth under one head, even Christ. So, you know, this is another teaching I sometimes give to bring out this aspect, the whole plan, it's revealed by the Spirit, it's centred on Jesus Christ, it involves the unity of Jew and Gentile, it involves the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the Christian and in the church, and it's all preparation for the fullness to come. Okay, there's... One other aspect of this that I'd like to share about, um, some time back in 1980s, there was a big charismatic congress in New Orleans in 1987. Was anybody here present at that? Yeah, well, um, this, in preparation for that, I wrote a book um, that was called One Lord, One Spirit, One Body which I gave a subtitle The Ecumenical Grace of the Charismatic Renewal. I wrote this book with various convictions. One was the outpouring of the Spirit in the charismatic movement is very important for unity and I thought a lot of the people who were concerned about unity weren't aware of this. But of course they weren't the people who were gathering at New Orleans. Um, <laughs> but... Um, I, the main focus of this book was that I, I, could, I was aware of the big danger in the Catholic Church of the attempt to turn the Catholic charismatic renewal into a sort of self-sufficient Catholic movement that didn't need the, the work of the Spirit in the other churches. And I, I saw this was wrong and so one of the things I was against in this book saying this is inadequate was what I call denominational renewal. Denominational vision of renewal is insufficient. But I also in that book um, described the opposite of that as also inadequate which was what I called non-denominational renewal. 
and um, and I put forward a vision that the for what I called there an ecumenical vision of renewal that avoided the dangers of the non-denominational view of renewal and the non-denominational view of unity. And in, in this, I think the basic concerns I had I would still agree with, but I, I haven't, I'm putting it in a different way 20 years later, and it may be helpful to explain this a bit, because I realize that this view of calling one of the inadequate views non-denominational was not doing justice to what the Holy Spirit was doing in the whole non-denominational sphere was not doing justice to what the Holy Spirit was doing in the new charismatic churches and networks and um, I think it's right that a vision of unity that is restricted on the one hand to just the historic churches or on the other hand only to the non-denominational world or the evangelical or a bit wider than that the evangelical world is, is inadequate and I firmly believe that today so in 1994 I wrote a book called The Glory and the Shame and this was a reflection on the outpouring of the Spirit in the 20th century, both the Pentecostal and the charismatic movement in all its expressions. And I wrote The Glory and the Shame, title was intended to express the view, fundamentally this is a glorious work of the Holy Spirit. What the Holy Spirit truly does is glorious. But I recognised also that there was a lot in these areas that was not simply the pure work of the Holy Spirit and some things that were indeed shameful and so it was um, writing about the whole phenomenon one of my concerns was to help people in the churches who were not really that open to recognise the importance of the charismatic move to help them to see that this is really important despite the weaknesses that they see. So, anyway, I wrote this book and that was the first book where I wrote quite a bit about Israel and about the importance of the Messianic Jews and as I'll mention soon, it was because of that book that I was invited to join the Committee of Toward Jerusalem Council 2 from the beginning. Um, but Two years later, I had another book. This one was translated. Well, One Lord, One Spirit, One Body. One Lord, One Body, One Spirit was translated into German. The Glory and the Shame was not translated into German, but this third book of 96 was translated into German. The Strategy of the Holy Spirit, question mark. Die Strategie des Heiligen Geistes. And um, in this book, really what I put forward was the view that um, in the work of the Holy Spirit in our day, the, there are two major prongs of the work of the Spirit, two major thrusts. One is the renewal of the older churches, and the other is the raising up of new currents outside the existing traditions. 
And in this book I put forward the view these are both important works of the Holy Spirit and necessary and we, are not, we should not think we have to choose between them. We have to see they are complementary in the purposes of the Lord. And so this was a real development from that earlier book. And that position I would still hold very clearly. That book was, came out in 96. Um, that the, the work of the Spirit, there is the renewal of the ancient churches, and this, the, the very old churches, and also the churches of the Reformation, after, and then on the other hand, the new groupings of the 20th century, Pentecostal, Charismatic, and so on. Now, in this, um, I was recognizing in this book that the Messianic Jews play a particular role. And you see here, in a way, this is what I put here. It's a, point two, all Christian churches, nominations and movements must be involved. Um, but, so in one way, I'm adding something to point two in saying there are, is the renewal of the existing churches and then there is the, the new current streams that have arisen up. Um, I've, I've used the word streams often in my books. I like the word streams because a stream continues to flow. It's something mobile. It, it's not an institution. It captures something of something that's happening, that's moving, um, and it's not easy to define. Um, I said at lunch to somebody, I do not like the language of waves. I think we should abolish the language of waves of the Spirit and get that right out of our heads. Um, because, um, you see, a wave is something that each wave replaces the previous wave on the beach. And in God's plan, the, the waves do not replace the previous things. God builds. God is a builder. And um, so the waves is a particularly unfortunate kind of terminology, I think, that expresses a kind of, um, you know, it goes with this longing for the new thing that's very happy to, to forget the new thing, the previous new thing. <laughs> um, and, and that is not healthy. So I use the word streams. And you see the streams may start to flow into each other or may, may divide, whatever, but they're moving. They're alive. Now, in this, the Messianic Jews have a particular importance because I saw that, you see, the Messianic Jews are both old and new at the same time. The Messianic Jews are, in their organization, they're very similar to the new charismatic networks and congregations. And in a lot of their theology and other things and worship, they're very like the new charismatic um, currents. But the Jews cannot be content simply to be something new. It belongs to who they are to claim this is a restoration of the oldest. The, the, the church in its beginnings was totally Jewish. And so um, 
there's a way in which um, the Messianic Jews have to grapple with tradition. You know, I've said a number of times that, I mean, if I can be blunt here about this, um, I think it's not very intelligent to use the word tradition as a negative word, like often happens. This seems to me to be very dumb, if I may say so. Um, The question is, there are good traditions, there are bad traditions. There are traditions that come from the Lord and there are traditions that certainly don't come from the Lord. The question, the real question is one of discernment. Being anti-tradition on principle is insane, I think. Um, It means I I don't want to learn from anybody before me. Um, The other thing that goes... With it, you see, is that uh, is the word liturgy? You see, this is another word or ritual. This is like, now. You see, the, the Jews are a historical people. It, it doesn't make any sense for Jews to be against tradition, um, because to be a Jew is by definition to be a son or daughter of Abraham. You've got to be concerned with being in this history. Um, and, uh, the, and the same with liturgy, the Judaism, the Ju- it's a liturgical faith. They were told how, what feasts to observe and when to observe them. So anyway, um, but you see, I think from point four here, I can come back and finish the talk here and time for any questions. Um, Israel as catalyst, I've sp- said a bit about the repentance part. But catalyst for biblical renewal, you see, we'd all say that authentic renewal means returning to the biblical roots. We nobody have a problem with that. We can all agree with that. We've all got to become more biblical. But in fact, being authentically biblical means going back to the Jewish roots. Um, and this means the New Testament is almost as much a Jewish Israel book as the Old Testament. You know, it's totally false to think the Old Testament is a, is Jewish book, and the New Testament is is not. The only author in the New Testament who wasn't Jewish, as far as we know, is Luke. Two books: Luke, Gospel of Luke, Acts of the Apostles. But and Luke may have been a God-fearer, um, you know, one who a Gentile who attended the synagogue and believed in the God of Israel, and so on. Quite likely was. And so, you know, when Jews read the New Testament, they recognize instantly this is a Jewish work, many of them. You find many Messianic Jews were converted through finally reading the New Testament. Because when when Jews read the New Testament, they're amazed by it. Because they recognize so much stuff in it. Often stuff that we do not see because we're not Jews. Um, So... You know, the, a, a, an authentic biblical renewal, we're challenged to this by this encounter with Israel. This means discovering the Jewishness of Jesus. You know, we could give, say a lot about this, but for example, it just struck for years, it had never struck me, um, this fact, the first verse of the New Testament. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
here is the human identity of Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. I'd never noticed that verse. It's like a program at the beginning of the New Testament. It comes in front of a genealogy, so we probably don't spend a lot of time on genealogies, so we don't notice it. But discovering the Jewishness of Jesus is foundational. You know, all the Jewish elements. He chooses 12 apostles, but it's clear he does that because there are 12 tribes of Israel. He is, he tells them that on the day of restoration of all things, he, you know, day renewal of all things, the 12 apostles will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And so on. So, there's a whole rediscovery a whole re-reading of, of the scriptures, including the New Testament, is needed in the light of the fact that God has not rejected the Jews, that Jesus is a Jew that of the tribe of Judah, son of David, and um, this, this is essential um, for us. So, the other last point is the full recovery of a messianic hope. See, this whole question of the preparation for the second coming, um, the Jews were the bearers of the messianic hope. Part of the calling of Israel to carry the promises of God. One other aspect of this is that faith is always faith in the promises, right from the call of Abraham. So, biblical faith is always faith faith that God is speaking now, but it's faith in the promises. And I think this is an aspect of faith we've neglected because of the distancing from Israel. But also, what has suffered especially from distancing from Israel is the hope in the coming of the Lord, the coming of the kingdom, and transformation in some way on this earth. Because this is the hope of Israel. It's very interesting that at the end of Acts of the Apostles, in Acts 28, Paul, verse 20, Paul says to the Jews in Rome, he says, For this reason I've asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. It's still because of the hope, what's still the hope of Israel, that Paul is in prison. Been arrested. See, so... The hope, the Jews are the bearers of the hope. And when we reconnect with the Jewish root, we rediscover the hope. And so this, I mean, in one way it's part of biblical renewal, but I wanted to bring that out because I think it's something that should stand out for us. The more we reconnect with the Jewish roots, the more we will rediscover the eschatological hope, the hope of the coming of the Lord and the fullness of the kingdom. And you see, the Jews are very earthly people. The Jews are rooted in, they have a land, they have a city, the city of the great king. And so it's impossible for people deeply rooted in the Jewish tradition to have an idea of the fulfillment as being taken away to a heaven somewhere else that's got nothing to do with the earth around us. That's not the biblical hope or the biblical message. Um, you know, in, in the New Testament, we might say that being at the right hand of the Father, away from this creation, is a temporary condition, awaiting 
the full healing coming of, of the Lord in glory. Now, there are many things that could be said about this, but uh, I think I will finish at this point. This just over ten minutes. George, um, do you want questions? Or anyone want to ask questions? Well, I don't think there's anything to be reconciled because um, the imminency... See, I think we could see the imminence as expressing the desire of the Lord to return. The intensity of his desire to come. See, in, in the Revelation 22, you know, it, it says, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And um, in, but in 2 Peter, where it has a passage about um, people scoffing and saying, where is this coming, he promised, um, and in 2 Peter 3 um, it's verses 8 and 9 um, do not forget this one thing dear friends with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day so you know ordinary human timing is not relevant here and the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. It says, the Lord is not slow. The Lord has not forgotten. And as some understand slowness. See, implicit in this answer is a distinction between the way human beings usually think and the way God thinks. You know, uh, so, um, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Um, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so, here we have this idea that the delay of the coming of the Lord is a mercy for more people to come to repentance. But I, I think it also expresses that I am coming soon expresses something of the heart of the Lord, the intensity with which he desires to come. See, also we must think of this in terms, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, even after his resurrection. And so, the Lord's desire is to come for us, to come for all his people, but it's also to come back for his own people and for his own city. And so on. But, of course, this raises thousands of questions how we interpret what's it going to look like and so on. I think one of the things is very clear. It, his coming involves massive transformation. Any other questions?
question is, could I give some indication as what an authentic revival would look like in a local church with references to Florida, Lakeland and Toronto and so on. Um, well, there's many things I could say about this and many things I probably shouldn't say. Um, uh, First of all, I, I think we need to look at our concept of revival. Because um, I think often the widespread concepts of revival are really somewhat defective, shall we say. Um, the classically among evangelical Christians, there are two concepts of revival. One is the sort that can be prayed down but cannot be humanly prepared and the other is something that is more humanly planned you know and the, um, the second category was more associated with the teaching preaching of Charles Finney um, but in all of these the idea of revival was of of, of deep conversion repentance deep sorrow for sin deep conversion and transformation of society these were all essential parts of the traditional evangelical notion of conversion of revival I mean now I think um, as the word revival is often used now in charismatic circles it doesn't necessarily have all those connotations that were classical evangelical revival connotations. Some of it means um, excitement, big crowds, um, manifestations of various kinds and so on. Um, and so I think, first of all, we need to ask what do we mean by revival? And if we're praying for revival, what are we praying for, above all? Because... Um, I think there is a danger in the new charismatic world of needing a new excitement every few years. And, um, and this is not very healthy. And it also goes, with, I think, with the wave kind of thinking. Um, um, but as a matter of fact, I was talking at lunch, I would talk questions about Toronto and so on, because, in fact, personally, I was hugely blessed in Toronto. And I... I had no doubt that this was the Holy Spirit at work in Toronto when I went there in general. Um, but, you see, for me, a big part of this question is um, what is the framework of understanding of the place where it's happening? Because if their framework of understanding is very limited, what the Holy Spirit's doing will be severely affected by that framework of understanding. Um, you know, I was very impacted in Toronto, to say more about this, like, but, and it, it actually, Toronto was a prelude to this calling about the second coming. So I, I am foundationally very pro-Toronto. 
Um, although, um, you know, that... Um, but... You see, I, well, I read a lot of... I've got a whole section in my charismatic library of books on Toronto. And I think most of those books are, are not very impressive. Um, because... You see, one of the problems, if, you know, this is a Catholic perspective on the evangelical world. Paul Miller may want to comment on this bit, but the, um, um, I think the, and it may be more a comment on the evangelical charismatic world than the traditional classical evangelical world. But here, I think, you know, you see, in Toronto, you know, there were a lot of phenomena, including laughing was one of the things that stood out, but that was far from the only thing that was happening. <laughs> and um, actually, the range of phenomena was one of the things that impressed me because I felt this could not be invented. You know, um, no human group that was con- making something up would ever, would, there wouldn't be this variety. <laughs> Um, um, but um, a lot of this literature I think was very feeble because you see of course there came the criticism about um, the fact that it's not biblical so of course all the the big evangelical question is is it biblical Um, that's not a question that Catholics ask and um, and and that's that's both a strength and a weakness, but we know But, you see, when, the evangelical, when people upset, criticized Toronto and said it's not biblical, um, the, the, so people start searching in the Bible for people falling down and so on, um, and, and laughing, etc., and so, you know, you get people quoting Sarah laughing, you know, in Genesis and so on. This, 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 for me, this is all pathetic. I mean, it says nothing whatever about, adds nothing to your understanding. Um, and it ha- doesn't help discernment, um, you see. And so there was a huge amount of this literature and then think arguments going backwards and forwards, people falling in the spirit, but then some other critics said, but in the Bible they only fall forwards, not backwards. <laughs> and, you know, for me this sort of stuff is a waste of time. And um, the real question is a question of discernment of what comes from the Holy Spirit and what does not. And I think the Bible is very, the, the role of the Bible is to provide the criteria for discernment. You know, the, the, every spirit that confesses that Jesus is coming in the flesh. You know, is that, that's what we have to take from the Bible, not l- l- searching for examples, whether there are or not examples of people laughing or falling down or jumping up and down or something. You know, I mean, so. Um, time to finish but I'm um, uh, where does that leave me with your question <laughs> probably leaves it unanswered but the, I think it's a, first of all I'd say the question is what should we be praying for 
to happen. You see, and this means conversion and repentance. See, one another of the criticisms made of somewhere like Toronto was there was not profound repentance. Because, you know, the classical revivals, like revival in Wales in 1904 and so on, people were profoundly cut to the heart and repented for the sin. Now, it's true that repentance in that way was not a major focus at Toronto. What I think was a focus at Toronto was that there were many tired, exhausted and discouraged pastors who were really got and were encouraged and received a new thrust and hope and so on there. And I think, I think this, there was something very genuine in that. But whether you call it revival or not is another matter. So I think first we need to look more closely what are we, we mean by revival and therefore link with that what are we praying for. And what are we praying for our local church and what are we praying for for the wider church? And see, I think that the work of the Holy Spirit would be coming back to these things that I, you know, the four prayer subjects of the Union de Prière, I think in a way those things um, really express what's on the heart of the Holy Spirit. I think maybe to those four prayer subjects you, you could add the establishment of justice and righteousness on the earth which is a major Old Testament thing, you know, the, the servant of the Lord, you know, it says in Isaiah 42, with this I will finish, um, you know, in faithfulness he will bring forth justice, he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. And this, this is absolutely central to the Jewish understanding of the role of the Messiah. Okay, that's it. <laughs>